marginalised people in whatever form don't have access to lots of different forms of power. But one thing I think that art does give us the chance to do is like rewrite our stories and recreate our histories. Hello and welcome to Tender Buttons, a podcast chatting to artists and writers about their process and politics with me, Jessica Andrews, and my co-host, Jack Young. If you'd like to buy any of the books from today's episode, as a listener of the show, you can get a 10% discount by entering Tender Buttons at the StorySmith checkout. You can find them online at storysmithbooks.com or visit them in person on North Street in Bedminster. We're really excited to kick off Season 3 with Travis Alabanza. Travis is an award-winning writer, performer and theatre maker. After being the recipient of the Artist-in-Residency programme at Tate Galleries, Alabanza's debut show, Burgers, toured internationally to sold-out performances in the South Bank Centre, Sao Paulo, Brazil and Howe, Berlin, and won the Edinburgh Fringe Total Theatre Award. In 2020, their theatre show Overflow debuted at the Bush Theatre to widespread acclaim and later streamed online in over 20 countries. Their writing has appeared in The Guardian, Vice, Gal Dem and BBC Online, and they previously had a fortnightly column in The Metro. They have been published in numerous anthologies, including Black and Gay in the UK. Their work surrounding gender, trans identity and race has garnered international recognition, and they have given talks at universities including Oxford, Harvard, Bristol and more. None of the above is their first book. Hi Travis, welcome on to Tender Buttons. Hi. And we were wondering if you could start with a reading from None of the Above. Yes, I'm going to. And I'm going to read from the chapter, the penultimate chapter, which um, the chapter is called Children's Sacrifice to Appease Trans Lobby. Yeah, but I believe that this is what the gender binary and our sacrifices to it do. We sacrifice a complexity that is within all of us in an attempt to appease a binary that we believe keeps us safe or in power. So that when we read it back, it almost seems false in its shallowness. We think, surely this must be a caricature of gender. No man or woman is really saying this. The gender binary leaves us as caricatures of ourselves, composed of all the sacrifices we have made in order to succeed as good and proper women and men. This means that when we see someone reject, disrupt or deny the very thing we thought we had to buy into, we can feel cheated into disbelief, as if the biggest sacrifice to the gender binary is that of our imagination. Gender in its current modern and Western form has rid us of a belief that anything could be more complex. I will never forget a man asking me on a night out, after far too many drinks, and me trying to avoid this very question. Well, if you can look like that and say you are not a man or a woman, Why can't I do that? Without missing a beat, I said, you can, go on. He stared at me blankly, as if choice over his body was too much of a foreign concept, as if the padlocks of gender were already far too tight for him to remove. Well, I am sorry that others are angry at the power of our choice. I have sacrificed too much for gender. I will be damned if I will let it take away my choice to say who I am. I wondered if we could start thinking about the um, structure of the book and the process of getting to that structure. Yeah. So it's structured around seven key phrases that have been said to either that have either uplifted or guided in the case of like David Hoyle or in the case of that chapter, like tabloid violence. And I wondered how you came to structuring the book in that way. Where along in the 
writing process that came? Not soon enough, I'll tell you that. Um, but uh, yeah, well, I kind of, I mentioned it a bit in the prologue because I, I wrote the prologue actually like last. And I mentioned it a bit in the prologue that I actually had this whole other book planned out first, which it's hard to talk about that, this book and its process without mentioning that book because it really was like four months and I was like 40,000 words down of another book. Um, and it was kind of this... I guess, like, 101, gender, like, all the things you need to know about non-binary book that I was kind of sold to the publisher and then thought that that was my way of what I had to contribute. And I kind of realised... Well, I realised a month in, but actually had the guts four months in to be like, I'm bored. I don't really care about this. I don't really want to write this. This isn't, like, artistically interesting for me. It's not, like, you know, pushing me into questions at all. Um... And so I was stuck for like a month. And so I left it. I just kind of like left the book. And I was like, look, if I can't write this, then I'll find a way and give back the money and whatever. And I started just like writing for fun and writing other things and realising that like everything I enjoyed was like close, close analysis of like words and phrases. I started writing plays and like everything I was finding fun was all these like really close analysis into like one dark piece of dialogue. And that kind of made me feel like, actually, if I tackled the book like this and used what I enjoy, then I would have a much better writing time. And so it kind of just came selfishly from enjoyment. And then I used that to then find, like, theoretically what I wanted to talk about. But first I was like, I'm going to have to enjoy writing this. And I just really love, um, I love what choosing a quote does to, like, the structure because it means I can play on my strengths of like dialogue and like scene setting and character building and lead the kind of I guess non-fiction-esque stuff to trail after that which I found really fun. Yeah one thing that in that chapter in fact that was really powerful on a linguistic level but then also political is like the use of italics how as you gain agency of telling the narrative away from that tabloid horror show at the end of that chapter ending with like everyone is yeah imprisoned by the gender binary can you talk a bit about your use of italics because that was something that really struck me as being a very powerful like tool you had yeah i think that it's like the most i was contemplating there was another draft where like that wasn't the title of this chapter and i just think because it's such a depressing title and i kind of was like oh i don't actually think the chapter like ends on a depressing note and maybe this will put people off, like, that there is such, like, a intent... They might think, oh, this book is, like, going to just focus on these kind of things. But for me, you know, the point of making art is, you know, we uh, marginalised people in whatever form don't have access to lots of different forms of power. But one thing I think that art does give us the chance to do is, like, rewrite our stories and recreate our histories and... I guess retell things where we didn't have agency. And so this moment in my life, you know, was a moment where I was stripped of so much agency. And actually I felt so powerful writing this chapter because I got to really speak back. You know, I didn't have access to the press when the press were talking about me. I didn't have access to all the media outlets that they did. But here I do have this page where I can recreate things. But also I wanted to use italics throughout the book, not just this chapter, because I felt like, this book is constantly going back on itself, right? Like, I wanted to show the reader that myself as a narrator also was changing their mind and also was shifting. And I wanted to show that, like, just like these phrases 
could mean one thing and then the next page they mean the other thing and then another page they go back to meaning the thing before we're also doing that and so I wanted to kind of I don't know all these things are a bit wanky and you don't know if it actually picks up on it but like I wanted the form to reflect me constantly changing my mind too and so I just kept on trying to find as many ways as possible to like reflect my feeling of change as well yeah yeah, yeah, I think that comes across really well. And I think there's something um, where you say, there's a quote about um, how you want to kind of like celebrate the magic of transition rather than explaining it um, in too many concrete terms. And I wonder if you could explain a bit what you mean by that, because I think it's yeah. a really important sentiment. Yeah, and I think if I'm right, I actually use that phrase to talk about like a transition of like my work, I think. Like you're catching me yeah, in one yeah. scene where I'm talking about, you know, I'm watching David Hoy in the club and then the next scene is me supporting him on tour. And yeah, obviously I use that phrase to kind of make people think about the other aspects of transition. Um, you know, the one that we're kind of reading the book about, I guess. But I guess, you know, there's a lot of like statements that I think this book rests upon. But one of them I think is that like, I'm tired of explaining these like, I'm tired of trans people explaining, not just me, but like I'm tired of queer and trans people thinking that like understanding is is the goal for us and that we're so focused as a society, so therefore obviously also our community on other people understanding us that we get lost in like, does that make us feel good? And does that bring us joy? Does that make us closer to our friends, closer to community, closer to doing good things that we're like so focused I guess this version of politics and like where like our work has led up to is meant that like we think that we are freer or more free when someone knows what we describe ourselves as or understand us. And I guess I just kept on finding that the most boring pursuit. And I kept on thinking that that wasn't like, you know, I read so much because I read so many history books for this and read so many like close archives of gender non-conforming people throughout, like mainly from like 60s onwards. And just like 60s, 70s and 80s and kind of the 90s, but not really. Like people were kind of focused on, like only the academics were that focused on explaining who they were. And the close archives of gender non-conforming people from the 60s to the 80s were mainly just experiencing what they were doing and how they were feeling. And then you see this real shift to suddenly people trying to explain what it means to be that thing. And it just lost a lot of its, like, soul to me. And it lost a lot of its purpose of, like, connecting yourself to other things and other causes because you're so focused on understanding. And I kept on thinking about how, you know, even more so in this current moment, but definitely when I was writing the book, I was like, if we can't get past understanding each other to work together as people, then this is going to be a really hard... um, you know, next 10 years, if we're requiring someone understanding us in order to care about them or in order to be with them. And that's not just other people talking to about me, but me talking about other people. If my neighbour needs to understand my transness for me to look after them, then I'm, fu- then I'm fucked, then I've got no neighbours. In the reading that you began with as well, I guess that's captured in the mirror that you show how trapped that cis man was by the fact that, like, the, the trappings of of their gender exploration and stuff, or lack of being able to. Just going back to the like process that you said about writing where you wanted to keep going back and showing things were in flux as you were writing the book. 
And I wondered about that tension between that's catching the book where there's so much flux and there's so much evolution and coming back to things, coming back to quotes and seeing them changed in different ways as you were changing writing the book. And I wondered about the tension between that and then the physical like thing of the book. Then you write really beautifully about how you're glad that you've got this moment of time captured so you could look back on it as some kind of archive maybe. Yeah, I mean, definitely still attention. Like, even when I was, like, reading some of it for the audiobook, I was like, hmm, I, like, disagree with maybe this now. I wouldn't have phrased this like like this now. You know, I was also, like... I mean, I know a lot of artists say this when they make something, but I really ticked off a lot of, like, the wanky artist statements with this book. Um, and I was, like, really depressed when writing this. Um... And I haven't had that before with, like, a piece of work. Like, I'm not really normally sad when making work. And I was really sad writing this book. And so I think that's helped me give it some, like, understanding of why some of it comes out that way. And that, like, this is an archive of, like, someone that was truly, like, depressed. And the source of that depression was, like, gender and the state of... Like, it was so clearly about my gender. And... um. I find it helpful because I'm like, there's not really like a get to the other side of this book. Like I don't like, even though when I finished the re-edits, I think there was a version where I could have edited the last chapter to be like, whew, I'm out of that depression and like, here's what I think. Um, but actually I found it like really calming to be like so many books that I'd read when people were analyzing their gender end with like a, and then I transitioned and this feels great. And you know, I think that that's true for lots of people. But there's some people that transition doesn't look like that for them and they don't want to transition in that way. And I think that I wanted a book that archived, like, the sadness of that, you know? And just, like, that you can... You are so close to imagining a world where that would be okay, but your current state of the world is punishing you for that lack of decision. And so... Yeah, I, I think it is terrifying. I mean, it's terrifying putting any work out there. Like, we know that as artists, like, it's 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 scary. But also, you know, in 10 years, I probably will cringe it. And that's perfect. That means I've gotten smarter or less needing to overshare. <laughs> That'll probably be it. I mean, that tends to be the feeling of my work. I'm like, oh, I didn't need to share that. So in 10 years, I'll be like, huh. Luckily, I've got a name change left in the bag. <laughs> Um, do you think, sort of going back to what you were saying earlier about the power of telling your own story and, and thinking about archives, I was kind of struck by in the book where you were describing giving a history to a doctor, like a medical history, and you wrote about how, you know, so many marginalised voices have been erased from history, especially trans voices, and a lot of the records that exist are like medical records. Mm. And I was thinking about how that kind of just reduces a person to their body, like to their flesh. And do you think there's something in writing a book or constructing something from language or telling a story that is maybe about your body, but in some way your body is removed from it? Is there something liberating in that? Or is it a yes. difficult tension? How do you feel about it? Both and none of the above. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, ultimately doctor's notes are read longer and they're archived in like more official ways. But I think that, again, it's about what we have access to and what powers we have to complicate our narratives. And, you know, this book was inspired by history in one part and me reading lots, trying to find archives for gender non-conforming people of colour from the UK and finding it really, really hard. And the only time I could find it was 
you know, in mainly people talking about like their medical notes or talking about their abuse. And I would speak to friends on the phone of a trans friends in lockdown, you know, catching up. And a lot of people were thinking about their gender. And a lot of the stuff that people were saying, the preface before was like, well, obviously I could never say this out loud. And obviously I'm just telling this to you. Or actually, I think at the time, because we were so permanently online, a lot of the phrases were like, I would never tweet this or, you know, and I was so fascinated because they would then say something that felt completely natural to me and completely, you know, understandable. You know, I had, and I think I mentioned some of them in the book. I tried to like turn a lot of them into I statements as me, but you know, kind of some of the thoughts are collective thoughts from other people. But, you know, people saying, oh, you know, I say I'm a trans woman, but it's because it's like, for lack of a better word, it's for ease, it's for whatever. I don't really believe in this structure. I'm doing this because it's easier, right? And which actually makes a lot of sense. And, um, but these people were like, I can never say that because I have to like, you know, guard this identity with my life. And I couldn't help but think like, well, Yes, I completely understand in your everyday life, we should, we don't, let's have ease and like save time. But again, it comes back to what we think art is for. And I'm like, if art is an archive, then we have to have our more complicated emotions archived down, especially in this moment of like huge anti-trans, like, you know, this moment in history against trans people will be recorded for a very long time in our history in the UK. And if all of our archives are just us constantly defending ourselves, then we don't get to do what communities do when they get to question themselves, which is like move forward in their thought, you know? And like, I am inspired a lot by lots of black, black, like scholars and thinkers. And you can see at the times of like great resistance, people were also pushing in challenging thought to their own community at the same time around capitalism, around misogyny, around religion. And that was happening at the same time as, you know, trying to also gain independence, you know, as black people. And I just was looking at what was being on the shelves in the UK. And I was like, we are missing, not that there isn't any, but there wasn't a plethora of voices that were also talking to our community to challenge ourselves as well, you know? And I remember saying to my friend on the phone after I'd written the first chapter of this new book and I was feeling excited. I said, oh, my first chapter's about, like, it doesn't, I don't really think we were born trans. And my friend goes, girl, are you really going to put that out there? And I was like, what? And she was like, girl, you can't put that out there. That's, like, proving proving them right. And I was like, what, you think we were born trans? And she's like, well, no, but, like, I don't want to say that out loud. And I was like, you know, what's going to be on our records? Like, you know, and it... it it did feel like we were going backwards. You read the records of the 80s and the 90s and just the trans people were speaking in such a more punk way publicly. And I think it's not our fault, but there is an effect that the media has had and this, you know, government scrutiny has had on our ability to like feel free in our thought. Yeah, I think as well, you know, you were saying before about the importance of capturing complicated stuff around, not just this neat progress from like transition to kind of happiness or whatever it might be, which is like also... I guess in part like something that publishing industries gatekeeped around like we needing memoirs mm. in terms of mm. trans voices. And then it struck me Sean Fay's quote on the back of your book around uh, none of the above being an anti-memoir. 
and I wondered if that well it, it obviously resonated enough that you let it on your book <laughs> but I wondered what that meant and in what ways you felt like that resonated I loved it if I was going to pay Sean Faye for a quote I would have paid her after that double I was so glad that she said it because um, I fucking hated this book being called a memoir like so much and like I'm annoyed that like that is what, like, just because you write from personal experience means that a book automatically becomes a memoir. It doesn't feel like a memoir to me. Maybe I haven't read enough memoirs. But it doesn't feel like a memoir. It feels like theory. It feels like someone, like, you know, using their life to make it accessible to others. But then it feels like a theory book, you know? It feels like a book theorising on gender. But I think that, you know... It's a mixture of what, like, publishing has to do to sell a book, but also who gets to produce theory and where theory gets to sit. And that, you know, I've it's so funny. A, a lot of gender, like, studies professors have, like, reached out to me being surprised by the book. Uh, and, you know, they've read... They put transgender issue on their, on their, uh, on their syllabus, but, you know, they don't use... Mem- they don't put memoirs on there. Uh, and then I sent it to a few people and they were like, wait, this is like, you know, this should be on there too. And I was like, yeah, what made you think it's not? And they're like, well, memoir or this or that. And I think it's about, like, I knew that I wanted to, like, kind of Trojan horse theory to a book that my mum could also sit down and read and, you know, have books that, like, people from the areas I'm talking about could read. And the way you do that is, like, bring them into dialogue. You know, there's a reason why the second chapter, which I think is maybe the most, like, knotty in terms of, like, you know, talking about transness and the one that I kind of was the most reluctant about whether or not it should be in there about, like, trans and proper trans. There's a reason why I set that in a pub, because... I wanted to like ground it in something like we all knew and there was lots of other examples like I could have set that on like an online discourse chat or like in the middle of a school debate you know all these other places where that conversation has come up but it felt important to like set it in a pub and yeah I don't know if it's it's maybe an anti-memoir in the sense that like it never wanted to be I never pitched it as a memoir but I guess I think it's an anti-memoir in the sense that hopefully it's another example of trans people realising the form that they have to be given and saying, like, fuck that, really. Do you know what I mean? And there's lots of trans people throughout art that do that. We're given a very specific um, kind of tightrope to walk. And I was just like, I can't be asked. Also, it's like, I'm 27. Do you know what I mean? Like, who the fuck's writing a memoir at 27? Shut up. Do you know what I mean? Like, shut up. Get a grip. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think, I think people, like, they do... People often say things like that to be reductive as well. I think like, oh, you're writing from your own experience, therefore it's not valid. I think that's a thing that Mm. people, the establishment, love to do. Yeah. (laughs) I love the way that you wrote about class in the book and I thought it was so interesting what you were saying about different experiences or conversations around gender in like different class settings. And I think especially when you said um, a family member asked you if non-binary was something that you learned at university. And I think that that's like such an interesting point about maybe the language that exists to understand things in certain spaces, but also maybe how that language is also sometimes not enough. Yeah. Um, oh, these are great questions. Thank you. It's nice to hear that I haven't like thought about, I haven't had like an interview in like two weeks, which has been the longest time with this book release. And it's nice to like have good questions. Thank you. Um, yeah, I think that 
language was completely failing us and it completely does. And I think that I used those stories. I'm really glad you picked up on something like that because it was definitely trying to prove that. It was like kind of me wondering if language and like the pursuit of like labeling ourselves correctly is actually a middle class pursuit. And that like actually, and you know, I'm still not sure. I, I don't land on a conclusion in the book. Um, but you know, I wonder if like who has the time and the luxury to be so caught up on like how people speak about you and you know how I, I think I say in the book that like the big change I've had from like growing up poor and no longer being poor is that I now have time to do things other than just doing and when you're poor like I talk about it in the book like everything is about like economically like doing something like every task is about what it brings to the end of it like you don't have time to do something that doesn't have an outcome to it if that makes sense <clears throat> and since I've had money, I've noticed that I can do things for leisure and like, you know, and and not just do leisure for leisure. Like I don't always know what my activities are doing when I'm, now that I'm not stressed about money. Whereas it's not to say working class people don't have leisure, but we know that we're like, oh, this is, we're doing this for fun. And since having money, I'm like, oh, I just find myself doing stuff and not understanding why I'm doing it. And that kind of felt comparative to like, conversations around gender when I thought about the trans people I'd met on the estate or other gender non-conforming people I'd met whilst I was younger in like a working class environment they didn't introduce themselves to me with like language or language first it was like doing and being and actions and then I got to a university space and gender became who we were by what we were saying we were first before we were doing and and that's not to make a judgment call on either it was just to try and be like this feels different and here I was you know, stuck in this, like, gender crisis when writing this book, and I guess I was trying to find my way out of it. And the question I was asking was, like, okay, as I've become more middle class, have I also forgot uh, how to do and how to, like, act? And have I got to in my head? And, and that was the question I was posing. I was like, I'm not new to being trans, right? Like, I've been out gender non-conforming since I was a teenager. But what's new is this, like, weird voice of like having to explain myself and and I guess I was trying to figure out what were the factors that have um created that and was one of them a shift in who I'm around in terms of class around the idea of kind of like leaving Bristol and everything that you your artistic career developed in London and like I wondered about how it's been coming back to the place you grew up because I guess lots of working class people leave the places that they grew up and never come back because opportunities or whatever it might be. I've always loved Bristol. Um, I didn't think coming, I I don't think if the pandemic happened, I wouldn't have come back, obviously. Or it would have been many more years, I think. And it was interesting trying to unlearn this idea of like, this is a step back in my career to come back. And actually that felt really nice to be like, maybe it is. But like, what is it like a step forward in? And I'm just so much happier. I don't think about work all the time. Not all of my friends are connected to my work. I think as much as I love, like, friends in London, I met them all in an industry, in an industry that, like, whilst you're in London, takes up your whole life because in order to pay rent in that industry, you have to, like, work ridiculous hours. And here I am in Bristol and, like, yes, I've got friends that are artists, kind of, you know, maybe. They're, like, artists, kind of, which is my favourite kind of artist. They're, like, (laughs) the artists that don't say they're an artist in their bio, you know? Like, they don't have a bio. Um... (laughs) And it's just really fucking nice. And it feels... I've kind of purposely chose not to work much in the city as well, which I know takes a privilege. But, um, 
you know, I'm not really making theatre here or performance. I'm just coming here as someone that enjoys art, so watching it and still going to London to work. It was mainly to build a work-life balance, to be honest. And I feel like maybe now the issue is I've got too much life and <laughs> there's a lot, of, a lot of deadlines that are like, hey, you used to be a lot more on it with deadlines. And I'm like, maybe I figured out that, like, this wasn't the key to life. Um, yeah, I'm definitely on my, like, how do I do the bare minimum to cover my expenses and live at the pub but uh yeah it's just nice it's great and it's it is weird also though there's definitely I think I mentioned some of it in the book coming back and not going back to my council estate and like you know not really I live in like you know a gentrified part of town and I definitely oh it's definitely not a part of town that was gentrified when I grew up here but um I live in a part of town that like um is close to like where I was, but definitely not the street that I was. And this street definitely feels different. And, you know, it's odd, but I think that, I think I mentioned it a bit in the book, but like, or maybe I've mentioned it in talking about the book, it's hard to distinguish now, but uh, I do think that like, what's coming on with our politics at the moment, people on, I hate saying people on the left, but me, me let me just use I statements. I have to decide to, you've got to decide to let some shit go and decide, are you just going to look out for people? And you can't keep on trying to divide who's good enough to be looking after and who's doesn't make the cut to be a good enough person to care about. Like, it was just making me a bit, losing it a bit in lockdowns when we were online and seeing all these judgments about everyone. And then I was like, okay, what's making me fall into that trap too? Maybe I don't feel a geographical tie to London so I'm able to like section off my groups of people into like, well, these are my friends and these are people I know and these are people I care about, my community. But going back to a place where you live, your community is not just the queer queers that you have made cool friends with because you also know someone from the shop that has known you since forever who has got their own community that you also know through being around. It, I don't know. It just means that the people I care about don't all look the same and they don't all speak the same and they don't all probably vote the same, right? But I care about them because I have a history in the sea. And so that's what feels good about being here. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like there's something expansive or like... Yeah. About about that being all those different kind of layers of connections that are part of yeah. your, your life and your past and your present. Yeah, and Bristol's got like, you know, obviously it's changed loads. But Bristol has like such big working class communities and like although obviously the centre's been like completely fucking taken away or whatever like it is this weird mix of different cultures in the city that I don't know makes it such a unique place to like actually practice what you preach in terms of like being a member of a community and helping people and like helping each other and um yeah it just feels easier to do in Bristol in London I felt lost doing it it felt kind of uh, a bit like navel gazy. I didn't really understand, like, I'm not from here. So, like, what, what, do I, where am I, like, stepping over toes? Where am I not? Whereas in Bristol, I'm like, I know this place so well and I know, like, how to be a member of a community here. Do you think as well, I think often, it's like a classic narrative, right? That, like, um, people who want to be artists who grew up in, like, working class or regional places, they have to leave and, like, make their life elsewhere and go to university and better themselves in quotes, whatever. But then that can be difficult because I guess you're like assimilating into one particular world or it creates a conflict in yourself. But I feel like often 
like the onus is kind of put on the person like oh okay you've gone and you've become an artist so now you've kind of got a duty to come back and like be part of that community but sometimes I feel like it's like too much to put on one person yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah what do you feel about it like do you feel like you have a sense of responsibility or do you feel like it's more of like a systemic like mm. social I feel like thing? it's both like I feel like if I didn't enjoy it here I wouldn't come back no amount of responsibility yeah. could bring me back here but I think we have a responsibility to be active in our communities and if for me it was like this community that I'm part of in London full of artists doesn't feel real to me let me find a community that does feel real. But then I'm like, if you as an artist feel engaged in your community that you've picked, wherever that is, and you feel active, then then cool. And then I think it shouldn't be on your thing to like trudge your way back to your hometown and like, you know, maybe get shouted at or see someone you don't like or be in a more homophobic space. You know, I am lucky that my hometown's Bristol. Like, you know, it's not, you know, even though I'm from the outskirts of it, it's like, it's not the stick sticks, you know? So it probably would feel different if I was going to a town of a much smaller place. Um, you know, oh, woe is me, the hometown returned to Bristol, one of the cultural capitals of the city, a country, oh no, God, you know, like, it's like, yeah, come on. But, um, yeah, I, I don't know, I think the responsibility, I do think that artists have a responsibility. I think that if we are able to make, there, there are so many luxuries that we have as artists, I know that, like, some people really disagree with this, and that, like, you know, of course, we should all be able to be artists, but actually, whatever we, whatever we have had access to, has made us have a, this as a possible life. And there's loads of people that could be artists, but haven't had access to certain things or certain people or certain introductions that have meant that they could think of this life to live. And so, I do do think that then, then we have a responsibility to like share creativity and like to bring that to other people and to allow other people to have, you know, access to it. But I don't think that we have a responsibility to like where that is. I just think for me, it was not feeling real in London for me. And I was feeling like, um, I think I turned into like the Monopoly man. Um, <laughs> and then I looked around all my friends and I was like, I know you're not all the Monopoly men too, but you all look like the Monopoly men. And I was like, are we doing art or is this business? Um, <laughs> and I was like, I, I keep on going out and thinking that we're hanging out. And then a friend would tell me, that networking event was fun. And I was like, I thought we were at dinner. So <laughs> <laughs> that just started just out. Pub, yeah. yeah, I was like, I, weren't we just having a, having a drink? <laughs> like, you know, and I was like, oh, this this is going to kill your soul, isn't it? After having written the book, do you feel like in terms of your like craft as a playwright and writing for stage, do you feel like there's there's been a shift? Like, have you been writing anything for the stage since? Do you feel like there's a, a dialogue between the two things? Triggered. I'm three weeks behind on a deadline that's a play that opens in January. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I am meant to be writing for stage at the moment. And after writing this book, I am too tired to write anything. <laughs> um, straight after writing this book, I was, like, on fire. Like, I was like, shit, I feel so confident and I feel so, like, in charge. And I really felt like I'd... You know, no matter what... This book's not perfect. I'm not saying it's the best book ever written. Da-da-da-da-da. But I'm like, when I finished it, I was like, this is a good piece of writing, guys. Like, I feel, like, really proud of the piece of writing this is artistically. And I've never had that with a piece of work before. I've always relied on, like, the performance of it to, like, bring through some of the writing, if I'm honest. You know, like, some of my plays, I'm like, mm, I'm not sure about the writing, but the actor was great, or the set was great, or some of the jokes were good. But with this book, I was like, nah, the words are really good. I'm I'm here for it. Um, 
it feels like my style. And then so after I finished the book and obviously it comes out like a year later, that year I really felt like in my shit and the world was opening back up and I was like, damn, I just finished the whole book in lockdown. It's like, I'm really that bitch. And then now since talking about the book for like four months and going back and doing all the press and, you know, a lot of it was quite difficult because a lot of the stuff that was talking about in the book around press and transphobia just like also was happening whilst the book was being promoted about the book. And so it was this really weird time that a lot of, some of the events got protested, you know, all this stuff I'm talking about in the book was happening in front of me. It has meant that I have been experiencing a bit of a drought now of like writing, definitely. I'm a bit exhausted, I think. Um, yeah, but I'm sure when I get back to it, I'll be like, yeah, I definitely think editing, I've like, I've learned a lot about editing through this book and just I've never had a piece of work go through so many edits and to really look and see where your like continual mistakes or not mistakes as a writer, but like your weak spots as a writer and see them come up over and over again. And you're like, wow, see the words that you really like to use and repeat. <laughs> um, yeah, so I'm definitely more aware of myself as a writer. I wondered about like just humour capturing because that's obviously such a massive part of your plays yeah and when you've got an audience like you say there's like an electricity but the book is also really funny and that's captured in it was that harder to get across in the written form i think this is my fourth wanker thing i'm about to say fourth wanker thing yes so i actually didn't think the book was that funny um i thought that the book was quite i remember there's a text i sent to my friend being like finish the book first thing i've ever made that's not funny don't know how to feel about that and then i see everyone go the book's really funny and I go, have we just got a low standard for jokes in books? <laughs> um, are we just really used to books not making us laugh? I, I can't find the humour in it, but I'm really glad. It was, it's been the biggest surprise when people are reading it that they're like, the book's funny. I'm like, hmm, okay, okay. I'm like, so you find my gender crisis inherently funny? Mm, yeah, sure, great. <laughs> wasn't saying that. Wasn't no, that. I'm, I'm fucking with you. I'm fucking with you. But, um... I'm glad people have found it funny. In plays, I'm making a conscious effort to make something funny. This, I really, really let... I think I sent a text to someone two chapters in going, I'm surrendering to this not being funny and that's okay. This is my, this is my serious moment. And it seems like even my serious moment. <laughs> I make a lot of jokes. Um, so yeah, I, I wasn't thinking about humour in this and that was quite freeing. And then it's also been lush to go back on stage and be like, oh, I think it's more fun for me to be funny. Um, definitely feel better. Maybe the humour's coming. You know what you were saying about, like, Trojan horse theory? Yeah. Like, maybe because because you're placing so much, like, really complex theory, but in ways that are very, like, everyday. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. yeah. Or, so that's yeah. probably part of yeah. the slipping through, right? Yeah. And I think when I tell stories, naturally, like, I'm going to write them how I write my shows with, like, the jokes in or the tone, you know, stuff like that. Um... But yeah, this felt like, um, it's been nice, people saying how funny it is, because I really thought people were going to, you know, you don't try not to think about the reviews, but I thought people were just going to be like, who gave this email a book deal? Like, I really thought that was going to be the vibe, so it's nice. The last thing that I wanted to ask you about is um, this quote that I love that I'm going to read, if you don't mind, where you said, it is exhausting but refreshing to be a facilitator in someone's peeling. And I think you were talking about how performances, or like how if someone comes to see a performance, it creates a space for them to feel more liberated in their own life, or how so often people say to you that the 
the way that you live makes them feel that they can be yeah. more free. And and I guess as a performance artist, especially like how important do you think it is that we have these imaginary spaces or like spaces where the rules are suspended or changed yeah. so that you can try out new things? It's everything. You know, I think that that's why performance is like my favourite art form to watch and to do and to like be a part of because, you know, it's so depressing to live in this world and we have to find spots to like find joy and that break in like order. And, you know, I feel like not only does performance allow the maker to be per versions of themselves, they can't be safely outside or on the streets. It also allows audience members to, to think in ways that maybe they're not, able to do or don't have the luxury to do every day we're given an hour where like we're surrendering ourselves to a person on stage or people on stage and we're given I say an hour it's because I don't think a solo artist should be on stage for more than an hour and ten but I think that uh you know we're given this time where like we surrender like to this person or people and we completely allow if we're if we're really watching we allow our mind to go where they want to go even if we abandon it afterwards and I think that's so exciting and I think that it sounds wanky, but I, I do think that performance gives us a chance to to heal in the sense that, like, we can access emotions that we don't feel safe enough to access outside. Or maybe some of us don't need that. But I personally do. And I for me, I'm not really a crier in, like, everyday life. And then I find myself in performance, for whatever reason, always crying at performances. And, you know, I wish I could work on... I'm trying to work on the crying in real life. But until then, I've got this space where performers allow me to access, like, tears and, and cry. And I know that when I need to cry, sometimes I just go to the movies and I'll watch something. And I think that's the same for other people and their gender and other people and their permission to be rude. I know that my mum didn't only really come to my performances until, like, two years ago, three years ago, just before lockdowns. So whenever that was. And she brings her friends... And what she realises is that she's not someone that really swears a lot or, like, she's quite polite. And after seeing my shows, she'll be in the bar and I notice that she swears a lot more and is a bit ruder. And I mentioned that to her because she came to one of my gigs, like, the other day and I was like, oh, like, do you notice that you get a bit ruder? She's like, yeah, well, I see you and, like, everyone on the bill being, like, rude and, you know... I saw this, like, woman... I took her to a show where, like, this performance artist was, like, an older woman and she was, like, swearing. And my mum was like, why am I, like... You know, why am I being polite? My mum's not around anymore. And I'm like, yeah, like, performances, like, let her just swear, you know? And I just think that's so sick. Like, where... Where does that happen, you know? Like, where you can watch someone and then suddenly your manners change. If you'd like to keep up to date with Tender Buttons, then you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram. You can find Storysmith Books on North Street in Bedminster, Bristol, and we'll put links to all our references on the episode page online. We'd also like to thank Ben Vince for allowing us to use his music for our theme. <laughs>